0: Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Good, you guys survived the first session. Ready to go for one more round here? Yeah. All right, good. So uh, as you guys were hopefully unpacking things in in your small group time, uh, we're going to kind of move, uh, we kind of started up here with temptation, and now we're going to take a step a little bit lower and talk about foundation and again, if we can learn how to navigate temptation, and then we can make sure that we're we're building our lives and our 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 understanding of Jesus is on a firm foundation, we can navigate a lot of the things that are really trip us up in life. And so, uh, we're going to eventually get to Exodus chapter three, verse eleven through fourteen, and talk about Moses. Uh, but before we get there, one of the things that that uh, is important to understand about there are a lot of things that on the outward as, as men outside of the kind of our, or who we are in our life, we look at and we think those are the determining factors of what determines if our life is successful or not. And usually those, those conversations have a lot to do with how gifted you are in your field or if you've developed skills in what you do or you just have a natural talent to do something. Maybe it's, it has to do with your physical prowess or your experience or your intellect or even it's just your physical appearance. And we, those be kind, of, kind of become like the, the factors that most guys gravitate towards to say, yeah, that, that determines if you're going to be successful in, your, in, your, in a marriage relationship or if you're going to be successful in business. But if, if you're a follower of Jesus, there's actually something far more important than anything that's on the surface, and really what defines your, ultimately defines your success is what is unseen, not what is seen. And sometimes we get, we get that backwards, and we get that flipped, and that's when we get ourselves into trouble. And so what I want us to talk about this morning is really that your, your invisible manhood, and I'm not talking about below the belt here, okay? I'm talking about your invisible manhood with things that people don't see actually have more to do with your success than what is visible, than what people see about who you are. And because of that, this is true of, of a lot of things in life, that what we see uh, above ground is only there because of what is below ground. So here's an example of this. Take a look at this picture. This is a picture of the Freedom Tower. Anybody seen that? Anybody been there? Haven't had a chance to go there. Obviously, this was built on Ground Zero after 9-11. Actually, this is, you know, it is 1,776 feet tall. Obviously, that's the birth date of our country, that year. And it is an amazing thing. In fact, it just, I mean, it, it actually makes the Twin Towers look small, if, they, if you, a uh, comparison, because it's so tall. Um, but when, when they were building this, there are a lot of things that went into it that are unique to this building. But what makes the Freedom Tower so impressive is not necessarily its height or its beauty or obviously it's the statement of, of rebuilding what was destroyed in the terrorist attack and even better. But, but what's so impressive about this is the next picture I want you to look at. You don't see this when you go see the Freedom Tower today. This is called the core uh, or the foundation of the building. And before they could ever build up 1,776 feet, they had to build a foundation that could support that and also could also support a building that could withstand another terrorist attack should it happen. So when they built the core, this, this area, which is the foundation, which once it was built, this is all below ground, it's 11 stories beneath the surface of the, the ground level. And it could be its own building all into itself. And when they built it, they knew that it had to withstand, obviously, the pressure of the Freedom Tower, but also the potential future terrorist attacks. So, so at the time, when they were building foundations for buildings in New York, the kind of the, the most uh, intense or compact concrete they would use was rated at 12,000 PSI, which is, you know, pounds per square inch. You know, your average tire is around 30 to 40 on, on your car or truck, maybe a little bit higher. But that means that that's the amount of pressure that that, that concrete can hold, so under the Freedom Tower, because of the pressure and its height and what it is, it's actually the, the, the most compact concrete in New York City at 14,000 PSI. And they had to build it that way because it had to have a structure underneath the surface that could hold the structure that was above the surface. And so most people, when they go see the Freedom Tower, they don't know anything about the core. But if you don't have the core, you don't have the Freedom Tower. And the core, or the trim tower, is what it is because of the fact that it was built properly. The foundation was built well, and it could withstand the weight and the pressure to hold up that building. And that's so true for our lives. What we see on the outside, or what we see above ground in our lives, is evidence of what's below the surface. And it's true when we follow Jesus. And I'm convinced, and this is what I want us to look at from the, the, the the life of Moses. That there's three key elements that are below the service that most people don't talk about, but they are the elements that build the foundation upon which God wants to build our life. And Moses had these things, and Moses, that's why Moses was a successful leader. Three things we'll talk about. Humility, intimacy, and dependency on God. And those are the kind of things that we as men, we don't talk about that. We don't want to talk about being humble. We don't want to talk about being intimate. We don't want to talk about being dependent. Why? Because we usually are the opposite. But men who actually follow Jesus and build their life on a strong foundation... That's what you find underneath the surface. Moses had that in his life. In fact, let me just, just for a moment, you probably are familiar with this, but just take, for example, Moses, his resume. If you were to say, okay, what's his his resume and what he's done in his life? It would be pretty impressive. So he performs miraculous plagues before Pharaoh. That's just to think about all the plagues that God used Mo- Moses just raised a staff or he says a word and blood, you know, water turns to blood or frogs show up or gnats show up or darkness falls or whatever and he's doing all these amazing things. He led God's people to freedom out of Egypt. Can you imagine leading a million people out of slavery into freedom? That's pretty good to have on your resume, isn't it? He parted the sea by God's power. He watched the greatest military power in the world completely obliterated before him. Can you imagine I mean, the Egyptians were the country, the nation on the face of the earth, and he watches them get swallowed by the, by the sea. And so he also is able to see water get produced from a rock and manna show up in the morning because God says it's supposed to, to provide for them. He leads God's people all the way to the doorstep of the promised land. Moses was an amazing leader, but what was so significant about Moses is none of that. It's what was underneath the surface that built the foundation upon which God could build his life. And that's why I want us to talk about this. Because if we can get these down, handling our temptations, and then realizing that there's a foundational concepts and concepts that we have to have in our life for God to build upon, then we can become the man that God wants us to be, which I'll talk about a little at the end. But one of the reasons it's so important is because, especially in the church, uh, we struggle to be the men we're supposed to be, therefore the church suffers for it. If we're the men that God wants us to be, our church is blessed by it because we engage and we lead and we serve and we do the things that Jesus did in the context of our church. And we'll talk a little bit about that <clears throat> at the end. But three foundational principles for Moses' life. The first one is this. Number one is humility before God. Moses had this. Now listen, here, this is one of the most incredible verses. If, if, if God could write this about my life, I could die now and be happy. In Romans chapter 12, verse 3, this is what it says of Moses. It says, Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Anything that God can say of you, that you are more than any man on the face of the earth, that's a good thing, right? This is impressive that 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 Moses gets this distinction. And when we, depending on what translation you read, that's actually from New American Standard, you can look at other ones, but but a better probably understanding of the word humble what's written here is another word that we don't use a lot today because we don't know what to do with it and it's the word meekness and we always struggle with meekness and what that means even though it's in the it's in Matthew chapter 5 in the beatitudes but but meekness is a better description than the word humility of what's being said of Moses here because ultimately meekness is is described to use a horse that's been broken or harnessed so you take the power of a horse and you harness that power And that becomes meek. It doesn't mean that it's weak. It means that it is literally its strength under control. And so the the best understanding in terms of what we see in Moses' life of what humility or meekness is, it's having this submitted strength. It's not that we're weak. It's that we're extremely strong. But our strength is actually submitted to somebody or something above us. And therefore, it's more useful and actually becomes more powerful than when we're just using it for ourselves. In fact, when you look through Moses' journey, that is the way he lived is that he had this strength within him that God developed, but he always was submitting that strength for God's purpose. There's only one time in Moses' life recorded in the Bible, and that's in Romans chapter tw- or, no, excuse me, Numbers chapter 20, where he actually takes the strength that he has and he unsubmits it from God. It's when out of his frustration with the people, he does the thing he's not supposed to do. He actually strikes the rock when God said, speak to the rock. And what happens is, is God says, because you didn't what? Trust me before the people. Now you don't get to enter the promised land. Why was God saying that? Because he said, you took the strength that I gave you and you used it in your own way. And therefore, you miss out on what I have for you. But that's, that's all the time in Moses' life you see this over and over again. It's this strength that gets submitted. So here, here's, here's an example what this looks like. And, I've, and uh, I think I've, I'm from the outside looking in, I think this is some of what's going on. So anybody ever heard of Tiger Woods? Okay. So I remember the remember the first time I saw Tiger Woods in in real life. I was I was actually just I think just in college my brother and I went to uh to the now it's called I don't know what they're calling it now but it was the L.A. Open which is at the, the Riviera Country Club in in L.A. and uh to watch the PGA Tour. First time I'd ever been to a golf tournament. Anybody been to a professional golf tournament? It's it's pretty pretty amazing to see how good these guys are. So you kind of pick a group that you walk around with and you follow, and then you can go with another foursome or threesome, and then you can just follow them. And so at the time, Fred Couples was like the number one ranked player in the world. And so we were following Fred Couples around and watching him. And then all of a sudden, we, we, we crossed over like the, the, the 10th and 11th hole right in there, and there was this massive crowd of people. And I thought, well, what is that crowd doing over there? Fred Couples is the number one player in the world. And I remember asking my brother-in-law who was with me, I said, what is that all about? And this is what he said. And he goes, ah, oh, there's some teenage kid named Tiger Woods, and everybody thinks he's something, so they're following him. <laughs> this is before, this is actually his, his first year before when he turned pro. And so, so, remember watching, then watching, then Tiger became Tiger, and everybody knew about Tiger Woods. In fact, it's crazy. You know they've done studies that uh, TV ratings go up when Tiger is in the hunt on Sundays in any tournament? Did you know that after Tiger wins, almost every Monday following a Tiger Woods win in any tournament, the stock market goes up? It's seriously, it's crazy because he had such influence in sport and also in life. And so you're watching this this meteoric rise of Tiger Woods, and then we all know in the last decade what happened to Tiger. His body starts to break down, but more than his body is that his life starts to fall apart. He's not only had an affair, but much like I shared about my friend earlier, it turns out that he's got a deep sexual addiction. His wife finds out. That becomes the beginning of the end for him. He was on his way to beating Jack Nicklaus, record of 18 majors, which now he's got 15, trying to recover and find his way back. But there's one element in Tiger, Tiger Woods' life that changed before the wheels started to come off. Anybody recall what that is? His dad passed away. Earl Woods was the primary influence in Tiger's life from the moment he was, like, born. I mean, in, there's pictures of Earl and Tiger out on the green when Tiger's, like, two years, three years old, just old enough to get a golf club in his hand. And if you ever have seen interviews with Tiger Woods, he has this, this incredible respect for his father. And his father shaped so much about his life. And, and obviously, when Tiger was younger and he'd win a tournament, who was the first person that he was usually going to after he'd win a tournament? is his dad. And so he had this this respect for his dad, and because of that, there was something of a covering that Earl Woods carried in his son's life that even though maybe underneath the surface, Tiger might have been struggling with some things, there was a sense that he was holding his life together because he had a covering. His dad. His dad was influencing him, and he was learning from his dad, and he was wanting to please his dad, and he loved his dad, and I think there were times where his dad was keeping him in line when he'd start to step out. What happened when that covering left? The strength of who Tiger Woods was no longer had a covering. It was no longer submitted strength. He was submitting to himself. And he became his own idol, he became his own God and because of that he thought he was invincible. And look where it got him. Now we all root for Tiger now because I'm, I'm I I'm mean I love a good story of redemption He's getting his life back together, his body's back together. He's actually won another major, so he's at 15. So who knows, maybe he'll get to 19 and he'll beat Jack, but I don't know. But I know there was a definite shift in Tiger's life when his dad, his dad was no longer present. And if you and I understand, we, in the same way, we, we have a father in heaven who we are supposed to submit this, this ability that he gives us the power that he gives us, is not for our own use. And when we submit it to him, it becomes stronger and more useful. But when we don't, what happens? Is it that very thing becomes destructive. That's what happened to Moses. The one time we have an error in his life, well, two times, he's a murderer, which God redeems, but then what? He takes his strength and he does it his own way. It's costly. So there's this, this element that this humility, this meekness is, is submitted to God. So here, let me give you another example on this, and this is interesting because uh, depending on people, there are big people who have fans or not fans of the restaurant according to food or whatever, but anybody ever heard of Chick-fil-A? Okay? Another one of my favorite is In-N-Out. Uh, Chick-fil-A, interesting story. Most of you know probably, at Cathy, who started, uh, started Chick-fil-A, it's an amazing story for him because he had this idea that the way he lived his life in following Jesus should also affect the way that he runs a business. And most of you are probably aware of the the, the story that he made a decision when he started Chick fil A that because he and his family honored the Sabbath and would literally not work on Sunday, that he believed his business should do the same. And so from the outset of Chick fil A, Chick fil A is never open on Sundays. And it's so frustrating after church when Chick fil A is not open, right? Seriously, Popeyes, there you go. That's how Popeyes gets busy on Sundays, right? But there's this, this idea that, okay, he makes this decision, and it's interesting. There's been so much pushback on Chick fil A for obviously its stance on marriage, which is a biblical stance, but also it's, it's pushback too because a lot of businesses don't like the fact that somebody's honoring God in their business and they don't want it to be successful. Chick fil A is the, the third most successful fast food restaurant in the world behind McDonald's and Subway, and it only does chicken. Uh, McDonald's is number one because of it saturates a market, that's how McDonald's does it. So, but but it, it made this commitment, this is what's so incredible about that, is that they've done studies about, well then wait, if you're only open six days, that means you're losing a whole full day of revenue. You shouldn't be doing that well, but they realize that actually they do more business on the other six days than a lot of other businesses. And in fact, in some cases, if they were open on the seventh day, people say, oh, you'd make more money and you might actually surpass Subway or McDonald's. But they still don't open on Sundays, why? Because they're submitted to a principle that comes from the Bible that comes from somebody above them. And this is what's been amazing is that they're so much more successful. In fact, somebody said, well, it can't be a religious thing. It's a marketing ploy. I read an article literally two months ago about this. Someone said, it's, they're making it sound like it's religious to get Christians to go to Chick-fil-A, but really it's a marketing ploy. And here's the ploy. If you close on Sunday, you make everybody hungry by Monday for your chicken. So then everybody goes to, to Chick-fil-A on Monday, right? No, and through all of the different things, Chick-fil-A has held its ground and said, no, we, we value our employees so that we don't require them to work on the Sabbath. That's submitted strength. Because the world would say, no, 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 you have to do it because you need, that's one more day that you could make more money. But they realize, no, there's something more important than money. It's submitting who we are to God and letting God provide. It's a beautiful, it's a beautiful model. And I think that that can be applied across the board, that ultimately we are submitted to God and the authority or power that he gives us is not for our own use but it's for his glory and when it stays in that it works well it's effective but when it, when it becomes our own it becomes destructive second foundational principle is the concept of intimacy with God and we as men we don't we struggle with intimacy Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 10 listen to what it says this is another one Th- these verses that are just specific to Moses Moses are so powerful it says since that time, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. What does that mean? It means not only did God, uh, Moses know God, God knew Moses. There was a relationship. And if you read the Old Testament, you know that That Moses would go into the tent of meeting and he would literally experience the presence of God. Or if he went up on the mountain, he would experience the presence of God. In fact, when he went up on Mount Sinai and he came back down, it said that he had to cover his face. Why? Because he had been talking with God in Exodus 34. He has this relationship that's profound. He has true connection. See, intimacy is when you are fully known and you fully know somebody else. Moses had that with God. God knew Moses in, in a powerful way. And why is that so significant? Because there's a tendency for us to know of God, but never really surrender ourselves for him to to really intimately connect and know us. We can become a fan. A fan admires from a distance, but never knows personally. Moses didn't have that kind of relationship with God. It was a two-way relationship. They knew each other face-to-face. They related. They connected. But when we become a fan, what happens is there's a disconnect and we, we never actually get to a point of being intimate with God, which when you're intimate with God, it shapes every aspect of your life because he touches every aspect of your life because you've given him every aspect of your life. That's why the biblical definition of intimacy actually is demonstrated between Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 where it says they were naked and they felt no shame. Why? Because they're fully exposed and had nothing to hide. That's what we're supposed to be with God, that we have nothing to hide. He fully knows us. But when we shift into this fan mode, we never get there. And ultimately, our relationship with God becomes kind of weird and awkward if we never become intimate. We don't get connected like Moses was connected. So let me just give you an example. My, my favorite band, no, no offense to Bluegrass, uh, my favorite band is Coldplay. I love Coldplay. Not so happy with their last album that came out, but I love Coldplay, even though. So, let me just put it like this: so, so, when you become a fan, you know of somebody, but they don't necessarily know you. And sometimes we do that with God. So, if I were to run into Chris Martin, who's the lead singer for Coldplay, out on the street one day, and I would run up to Chris and say, "Chris, it's me," and I'd say, "Hey, remember? I've been. I've seen a couple of your shows at the Rose Bowl. It was just packed. It was incredible." I, I buy all your albums, I listen to all your music, I was at the, the videotaping of The Voice when you launched one of your songs, I could literally, I was within like 10 feet, I could spit on Chris Martin, I was that close, and I keep saying, hey, and I, I follow you on Spotify, it's me, what would Chris Martin do? Exactly, actually, then he'd call the police and say, hey, could you come take this crazy guy away, right? <laughs> Why, because I'm a fan, and a fan, a fan knows from the distance, but doesn't know personally or intimately. Why? Because he knows nothing about me. And I might even think I know a lot about him, but I don't. Why? Because he doesn't fully know me, and I don't fully know him. Moses had this relationship with God where he was fully open to who God is, and therefore there was, it was a two-way street. And there's places of vulnerability in our life where you and I have to give place for us to fully be known by God. And it means this. Intimacy never happens by accident only on purpose. You don't just slip into intimacy with God. It doesn't happen that way. You have to actually fight for it. Why? Because everything in your life will pull you away from intimacy with God. And so that's one of the things that I know I've battled, but I, I try to establish a really firm rhythm in my life that allows me to have the time to actually connect with God so that I feel like I've, I'm able to bear my soul to God and to listen to his voice and for me i can't do that in a day-to-day life i can't do that with the responsibilities of pastoring or being a husband or being a father and so i have to call a time out on myself periodically which by the way is the same rhythm that jesus lived when he was on the earth if you read through the four gospels there's many times where it says what jesus removed himself to solitary places why so he could commune with the father that's why when jesus did all his miracles what was he doing that out he's doing out of a deep rich relationship with god what it was power under the submission of the Father that Jesus accomplished his purpose on the earth. So for us as men, it's really hard for us to, to do that. What, when we go spend time with God, I mean, isn't it enough that I have devotions, I do soap and I pray at the end of that and then I just hit the checkbox and I'm out. No, there's got to be something more. Why? Because God needs time. He needs space. Because if you don't give him that time and space, you won't hear a lot of what he has to say. So one of the things I've established for uh, over the last seven years at, for our staff and for me personally is our staff knows that they get a, what's called we call it a sabbatical day and they get one every quarter and it's not a vacation day, it's not, it's not PTO, it's not a sick day. It's a day that all they're allowed to do or supposed to do is do whatever they do to get away and be with God, whatever that is. You can't run errands, you can't go to the doctor, you can't sleep in and just take a day off. You need to go and spend time with God with no work involved. It's hard for some of our staff to do that. Now, I just finished uh, a master's program in December, and I was not good this last year. I only took one in nine months, and I'm supposed to do it every three months. So, finally, got to do one again about three weeks ago. Went away, and I have a There's a beach in Oxnard that is like my place that I hear from God. In fact, Kim and I have made major life decisions at that beach. It's just I feel like when I'm there, I'm in heaven. In fact, it's the very beach that I proposed to her to be married. And so it has a lot of significance. And so I will literally, for the day, I'll just go to the beach, I'll, just, I'll take my Bible, some earphones, and my phone, and listen to worship music, and just walk on the beach, and just let God speak to me. And there's one little lifeguard tower that I get there before the lifeguards get there, <laughs> and I just sit on it, and I watch the ocean, and I pray. It is my favorite place on the planet because it's a place where I go and I get to just just be human with God and just listen to him, and I get to pour out my soul. I get to complain about things I don't like in life and how things are not fair. Anybody ever felt like that? And God listens. He's patient. And then he answers, and sometimes I'm like, I don't want to hear that, but I'm hearing it, God. And every time I go, I come home and my wife is so glad that I went. <laughs> in fact, there are times like she'll say, you think it's time for maybe a sabbatical day for you? <laughs> I'm like, is it that bad? She goes, yeah, it's that bad. But when I go away, I, there's, there's this connection I have with God that I just don't have, even though I, I have devotions almost every day, I just can't get there. Why? Because I don't give him time. So if I'm getting a good five, six, seven, eight hours just by me and God alone, then I get to here and I come back better. I come back more grounded because I feel like I've met with God. I don't think my wife has said that my face is shown like Moses is but her not glowing, but she can see it in my attitude. She can see it in my behavior. Why? Because I've been with God. I've been intimate with God, and it changes my life. Finding that rhythm is so important to experience that intimacy. And then there's a, a final uh, principle. we will take a little bit of time on this. It's really important. The final principle, foundational principle number three, is dependence on God. Is being dependent on God. I said it earlier. We are not self-made men. We are God-made men. and We have to realize that. So this is what I said. We're eventually going to get to Exodus chapter 3, verses 11 through 14, because this is the foundational encounter that Moses has with God. So if you remember Moses' story, Moses is raised in Pharaoh's household. He one day sees uh, an Egyptian treating one of his, his fellow countrymen, one of the Jews, not fairly. So he actually, in his anger, kills the Egyptian, buries his body, and then finds out somebody saw him, and then he flees to Midian for 40 years. He runs to the desert to hide, and then God... In the midst of that, he re-engages with Moses, and he's been working in Moses' life this whole time, but then he has a conversation with Moses that changes everything for him. And I want us to, let me just read the passage, starting in, in verse 11 to verse 14 of Exodus 3. It says this, so God's coming and encountering Moses we, in, this, in, the, in what we call the burning bush. God's speaking to him, and it says, but Moses said to God, in, this, in the middle of this conversation, God has called him to go to Pharaoh. He says, who am I? that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. So God is saying, Moses, you're the man. You're the guy. You're the one that's going to go lead my people to freedom. And he says in verse 12, and he said, certainly I will be with you, says God, and this shall be the sign to you that as I have have sent you. When you have brought these people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. And I will say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall uh, say uh, to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now there's a lot going on in these verses that that I just want to pause for a minute and talk about. So God's saying, Israel's been in slavery for 400 years. You're going to go set them free. Oh, sure, I can do that tomorrow after breakfast, Right. That's an impossible task. Your people have been enslaved as long, longer than you've been alive. And it goes back for, for centuries. And God says, you're going to be the portion to go do that. So what is the first thing that Moses does? God, you sure? Who am I? Who am I, am I? Am I supposed to be the one that does this? So what is he saying? He, he's saying, I don't have what it takes. I don't have what it takes to go stand, first of all, to gain the respect of my people that you want me to lead, and then stand before Pharaoh and have any, any leverage or any authority to tell him to do anything. I'm not the right guy. Who am I? But it's beautiful. How does God respond? Moses says, who am I, but what does God say? I am. What is he saying to Moses? You don't have to be, because I am. And this is really, really powerful. He replies to this, and this is what, what God is saying. He's saying to Moses, I will always be with you, and I will always be what you need. That's what God says to his people. I will always be with you, and I will always be what you need. Have you ever been in a situation where you questioned if God was with you? Have you ever been in a situation where you questioned if God is going to be what you need? And why is this so important? Because this is the first time in Scripture that God's self calls himself Yahweh. There's The reference to Yahweh is before this, but this is the context where God says, My name is Yahweh. Embedded in the name of God is this statement to Moses and this statement to God's people. I will always be with you, and I'll always be what you need. Now, when you're Moses about to go before Pharaoh, you need to know that. Why? Because there's going to be a moment when you think, God, are you crazy? Are you here? Do I have what it takes? And God says, you don't have to have what it takes. Why? I am. I am what you need. And that's important for us, because what is God saying to Moses? The only way you lead my people out of slavery is What? By being dependent on me. That's how we find success in life. What? By being dependent on God and relying on him. And it's embedded in the name of who he is. So God's saying, I will always be with you. I will always be what you need. Again, this is that temptation of self-promotion, of performance. But God reminds us, you don't have to do that. Why? Because I will always be with you and always be what you need. Now, as a, as a pastor, I have to be reminded of this constantly. My biggest temptation is self-promotion. That's my biggest temptation as a leader, is to, to perform, to prove myself. Even though the Lord has worked deeply in my life, I catch myself periodically going, I'm finding my value in how well Sunday morning goes or how well a leader I am or how the church is. And God says, no, no, you find your value in me and your dependence on me, not in your own ability. And the Lord has to remind me a number of times in that reality because I I struggle with that, and that's why I try to, those timeouts that I take are important. One time I was taking, I didn't have a time for a whole day, but I just knew I just needed to be alone with Jesus because I was feeling, just wasn't feeling good about where I was, and so I spent a morning fasting and just praying, and so because of that, on this one particular morning, I wanted to do something with getting out and, and just kind of get away. I couldn't, didn't have time to drive out to Oxnard from Simi, but but I live on the east side of of Simi Valley, or the west side of Simi Valley, excuse me, and there's a a little hill, but they call it Mount McCoy. And on the top of the mountain is a cross. Anybody been to the Reagan Library? So if you're at the Reagan Library and you're in the pavilion where Air Force One is and you look out, you look out just to the right, you can see that cross. And just on the other side I live down at the foot of that that hill there, that mountain. And so for my house, it's maybe like a mile walk and then a, then a hike. And so so I thought, well, let me. I had gone up to the cross a number of times, and there's like three different ways to get there. If you if you're you're really lazy like I was one day, you just drive up the the back road to the Reagan Library, you park halfway up their road, and then you can walk like half a mile, and it's a really slow incline, and you get up an in incredible view of Simi Valley. Or there's another way that you can go that has some kind of some switchbacks that kind of comes up the side, and you can get that way. But then there's there's a third way, which is the most direct route, which is literally going straight up the hill, straight up the mountain, and so. So I thought, eh, I'm feeling good this morning. By the way, after you fast, it's not good to go on a really strenuous hike. I found that out the hard way. So I start up, up the mountain, and I just wanted to get up to the cross to pray. And so as I'm going up, literally there's parts where it gets pretty vertical, and you almost feel like you're rock climbing, because you're actually literally on your hands and knees kind of maneuvering around some stuff. So I just keep kind of plugging away, and it just feels like the cross is getting further and further away. I'm like, I'm ever going to get there. And about two-thirds of the way up the mountain, I, I, I'm coming along, and, and the the terrain is, there's no tree trees. There's like shrubs and tall bushes, but no trees. And so I come across on the path, there's a bunch of different paths, there's a, there's a stick that's about, I don't know, it's about four feet, and it, and it doesn't look like anything around there. It doesn't look like it came off any of the bushes, it's just a stick. And so I thought, oh, that looks kind of odd, like it's not supposed to be there, and I just kept going and just kept moving up the mountain. And so it wasn't an audible voice, but it was a deep impression. The Lord said, pick it up. And at first you're like, if you know, you kind of hear the voice of the Lord and it's in this like you're like, that's just, that's not, that's not God. And so I just kept moving and the Lord said, stop and pick it up. And then my reply back awake. I think I remember in the Bible when somebody else picked up a staff, something really bad happened. So I don't know if I want to do that. So I said, fine. So I stopped. I literally walked back down and I picked it up and I just kept going up the mountain. So as I'm going, by the way, it didn't turn into a snake, it just stayed as it was, it was a stick, and so I just kept going up, so I'm thinking, God, why, I'm affing this dialogue, the, the rest of the third of the way up to the cross, like, God, what are you doing, why am I picking up this stick, it's, it's, it doesn't look very impressive, it's a stick, and so in my mind, this is, this is, so just get into my, kind of my neuroses, this is what I was thinking, I'm thinking, okay, God grab me this, had me grab this stick, because there are rattlesnakes around here. I'm going to encounter a snake, snake, and if I didn't have the stick, it wasn't, I, I would not be armed enough to handle the rattlesnake. So that's why God had me hit the snake. Or there's going to be, we have coyotes, and every once in a while, you might actually run into a mountain lion. I'm thinking, well, this stick's really going to do a whole lot with a mountain lion. But in my mind, I'm kind of figuring out, why would God do this? Here's why God's doing it. That's kind of what I was rehearsing in my mind. So I made it all the way up to the, to the top, and I got to the cross, and just as I got to the cross, there was somebody else who had been up there for a few minutes, and they, they were leaving, going down the backside. and. So I got up there, and I just sat at the foot of the cross, and that cross from the base to the top is about oh, 10 or 11 feet tall. It's pretty pretty big. Um, and so I'm sitting there, and just as I get there, the, it was, had been a completely clear day in Simi Valley. And I get up to the cross, and I, no exaggeration, I won't show you, I have a video on my phone. I had to video this. The top of the mountain was just completely surrounded in clouds. I couldn't see anything. Couldn't see, I couldn't see the Simi Valley to the east. I couldn't see the Moore Park to the west. I couldn't see anything. Couldn't see the Reagan Library, which literally, uh, just as the crow flies, like half a mile. Couldn't see anything. All I could see was just across cross and all these clouds. So I'm like, okay, this is an interesting moment. So I sat there, and then I just put the stick in front of me. I'm like, God, I don't get it. Why? Why this, this lame stick that doesn't look impressive at all? And this is what the Lord said to me. He said, I, get, I had you grab that stick Because I'm thinking, God, if you wanted me to grab a stick, why don't you have me grab a staff? You know, staff's a little bit taller than I am. It's bigger. It's what a shepherd's supposed to have. And this is what God said. He said, no, that's not a shepherd's staff. It's an under-shepherd's stick. I'm like, he goes, yeah, because there's one that is the chief shepherd, and you need to be reminded it's not you. And so I stared at that stick, and I'm like, yeah, it is. It's pretty measly and flimsy and nothing impressive. And God said, I'm trying to remind you of something that you seem to have forgotten. You don't have to be the chief shepherd because I am. You just have to be what I called you to be, which is an under-shepherd. Because years before, the Lord had taught me this really powerful lesson. Jesus is the Lord of the church, so I don't have to be. I don't save anybody. Jesus saves people. And I had forgotten that, and the Lord was saying, listen, let me just remind you, you're completely dependent on me. So if you were to see my office at the church on my bookshelf that sits right behind my desk, I have this stick. and <laughs> it, It's not a, oh, no, nobody has walked to my office and go, oh, look at that really firm walking stick. Because it just is this little stick that sits on the top of my bookshelf. And every day I walk into my office, the Lord reminds me, you are not the good shepherd. You're the under-shepherd, and that's all you have to be. Because I will always be with you, and I'll always be everything that you need. And the Lord reminds me of that over and over and over again. So my, my success is based on my dependence on Him, not on my ability to do it on my own. So I'm going to just kind of walk through some closing things here, But I want, and then we'll move towards some small groups. But we're talking about stuff below the surface. These are things that nobody else sees in your life. Nobody sees you acting... Uh, intimate with God. Nobody sees you being humble or dependent on God. They see the evidence of that already built in your foundation that gets above the surface. So maybe you're struggling today when it comes to the foundation that you have, and God's calling you to rebuild your foundation because if you're here today and you struggle with pride or submitting to authority, what is God saying to you? Your power is unsubmitted. And until it becomes submitted to me, it won't be what it's supposed to be. You can't be everything that God's called you to be unless you submit to him through humility and meekness. Second thing, maybe you struggle with shame or condemnation. You know what the answer to that is? Intimacy with God. If you constantly feel like you're not enough, it's because you haven't spent enough time with God for him to remind you that you are. Because the moment that you and I try to, what? We try to work really hard to be better at what we're doing, what, what ends up happening is we what we test God. Because he's already said who we are, and we don't have to develop or perform to do that. And maybe you struggle with feeling a feeling of being inadequate. What you really need is you need dependence. Because guess what? We are inadequate, but not through dependence on God. Why? Because I'll always be with you, and I'll always be everything that you need. And If that's the true and the nature of who God is, then we can live that out. So here, here's the thing. And this is, uh, I've talked to, have you, uh, you know Jason Graves? Okay, have, has Jason done Man? Have you had him do his thing? Okay, it's really, Jason is a good friend of mine and Pastor Bernie, but he does a thing called Anchorman, and he, he's found some similar things, and I've found some similar things for me that, that guys in our church at Antioch, I'm sure it's true here, you guys are great guys, but it's things in life like temptation and then making decisions based on a faulty foundation that get us disengaged from the game, questioning ourselves. And when we disengage because of shame or inadequacy or whatever, we pull back in areas where God's pushing us to lead in. And one of those areas a lot of times is leading in the church. It becomes difficulty. We disengage the game. We pull back. But if we are able to navigate temptation and then we're able to build a foundation, what happens is out of that there's a strength that comes in us that when we're presented with opportunities to engage in what God's doing through our church, we're the first ones to volunteer. Why? Because we're reminded that, what, God will always be with me. And God will always be what I need. So let me just tell you this quick story because then we'll, we'll go towards prayer. There's a gentleman in our church. He's a single guy. He's in his mid-50s. Um, and one of the nicest guys, but not the, one of the most popular guys. Kind of, kind of a, um, a little quirky, but, but really a great guy, and I've gotten to know him. But, but he's not the kind of guy that everybody would be. He's, he's my first choice. And a few years ago, he... He had always been, he's, he's always at every service. He's always there. Literally, he shows up 30 minutes before every church service if he's going to be there. I mean, he's like on time. He helps with some of our, our doing communion stuff and supplies on Sundays. But a few years ago, he did something that I hadn't seen him do before. He decided to serve with our kids. And I'm just going to be honest with you. I thought, well, I don't know if he's the best guy. Not because he would be dangerous around kids, but I, like, I don't know if he could relate with kids. But he, in something inside of him, he had felt a sense of inadequacy, but he stepped in where a lot of our guys wouldn't step in, and he started serving with kids. And at first, I was checking in with our, our children's pastor, like, how's he doing? And she said, well, we walked him through training, and he's been kind of watching and observing before he starts to do what he's going to do. And I said, okay, how's he doing? She goes, he really is good at listening. He seems to be engaging. And, and so like six months go by, I said, how is he doing now? And She goes, she goes he's actually one of our best small group leaders for our kids kids love him. He's six foot four. And so, like, he's looking down at kids. He looks like a giant to them. But he's there every Sunday, and he serves. And somehow, he's got this rapport with kids. And I would have never seen it. In fact, one of the things that is always amazing is that when we do our our kind of our summer VBS and some of the worship that we do with our kids, they always have hand motions. You know, as adults, we don't know how to do hand motions. We know how to raise our hands, but that's as far as we go, right? But so they had motions. And so, Every time on a Sunday morning when we sing a song, like we'll have our our kids, or youth worship team lead, and they'll lead a song that the kids know, and they'll do hand motions, guess who's the first one leading the charge? Six foot four guy who knows every hand motion by heart. The guy can't dance, but he still dances, and he doesn't care because he's not doing it for the adults, he's doing it for the kids. And every time I see him, I'm so impressed because he's done something that other guys who are more qualified or stronger or more skilled wouldn't do. And he's making an impact in the lives of our kids because he realized he could step into that. And something happened in him a number of years ago that the, the switch flipped for him. And he started to serve and engage more, and he's made a profound impact. I share that because... Maybe you've struggled with temptation you've given in, so you've disengaged. Maybe some things you've struggled in your life because what you haven't realized is that below the surface there's things that you're not, you haven't dealt with that God's calling you to deal with to rebuild the foundation so the core is strong so that the building can go high. And if you address those things, whatever God moves on your heart to do, you can do it. Why? Because he says, I will always be with you and always be what you need. And when people, when you wake up to that reality, I'm telling you, we got, we had a season in our church, and this is the only time I've ever seen this, and it's when we have a children's, a female children's pastor, and now we have more guys serving in our children's ministry than we've ever had. It's not because they're trying to, because they're going after her. She's getting married to my son, so I know that ain't happening. But it's this amazing thing where our guys are stepping up, and I'm watching guys ages from as, as young as 18 and as old as uh, 62. Serving with kids. There's a guy who's 58, and he's just early retirement. He goes and he holds babies. This big, strong guy has been a businessman. He's in there holding babies. Why? Because something in them said, I can do this, even though it's a struggle for me. I can do this. Why? Because God is always with me and will always be what I need. So I say that because I I believe that it may be in the church, it may be outside the church. There's things that God has called you to do and wants you to do, but you still are stuck. You're on the sidelines, and God's saying, no, it's time. Time to rebuild the foundation. It's time to navigate temptation so that you don't feel inadequate or disqualified from what I'm calling you to do in life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray in a moment again, and I'm going to dismiss you to small groups. Here's the three things I want you to discuss in small groups. First one is this. Which foundational concept do you struggle with most, humility, intimacy, or dependence? Second question. What is one thing you can do to focus on developing one of the foundational principles? And then finally, the third thing is pray together. God's Spirit would give you the courage to build or to rebuild the foundation of your manhood. So go below the surface. Go below the ground to rebuild what God is doing in your life. All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for, again, each one of the men that are here. And Lord, I know that when you, because Jesus, what you did on the cross, when you look down at us and we have trusted our lives to you. You don't see our sin, failure, brokenness, inadequacy. You see a child of God. You see our true identity and who we are in you. And because of that, Jesus, you see all of the ability and the potential that you have given to us in our lives. And I pray today that each man that is here will begin to see himself the way you see him. And that is, Lord, that if there are areas of brokenness or failure in in temptation, that they would experience forgiveness from you, that they are covered. If there are things, Lord, where they have felt like they can't, there's something that they maybe feel like they should do or want to do, but they can't do, that you would remind them. You are always going to be with them, and you will always be whatever they need. And that the result would be, Lord, that they would begin to live into the fullness of what you have for their lives as husbands, Fathers, employees, managers, CEOs, people who serve with kids or youth or usher or serve in the community, that, Lord, whatever you've called them to do, that not one man here will ever be stuck on the sideline because they have reengaged, Lord, your purpose in their lives because they trust you with everything and live their life on the firm foundation of who you are. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Amen. Go ahead. Find uh, three guys again. Take some time. Go through those three questions, and then and then pray together. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.